Let's pray together. Truly, Lord, you are all that we want. Truly, you are all that we need. And God, we come before you humbly this morning just thanking you that that is the very truth that guides us into your presence again. Once again, our, our great need is for you. And so, Father, receive our worship, not just in song, but as we turn to your word in a few moments, that, Lord, you would be glorified and not just the reading and studying and proclamation of it, but our obedience to it. Father, we ask that you would show your grace to us, your people, this body of believers that you have put together. And Lord, while we don't ignore that we are going through tough times, Lord, we trust that you are going to um, just make us shine on the other end of this, that Lord, you are working these things as iron sharpens iron and sparks fly. But Lord, you, uh, this is your body, your bride, your church. And we ask that you would help us as we work through these things as a congregation, that, Lord, you would help us. Father, we ask that you would uh, not just be with us, but other churches in our area. We uh, pray for Warrensville Baptist Church this morning that you would uh, be with them, that, Lord, you would sanctify them in your truth, that you would guard them and protect them from the enemy, that you would use them for the furtherance of your gospel. We lift them to you, Lord. And we ask, too, that you would be with our sister churches within uh, the Reformed Baptist Network. Lord, we lift up Bible Baptist Church of Galway, New York, to you this morning, uh, that you would be with them, uh, that you would encourage them, that, uh, Lord, you would be with uh, their elders as they um, put forth, forth the word of life, that they... Um, seek to guide and shepherd their congregation. Lord, I pray that uh, they would grow in grace, that the believers in that church would be active in, in evangelism in that part of New York, that, Lord, you would give them great zeal in doing so. Father, we thank you uh, for them, and we lift them to you. Father, we also lift up your church in other places. We know that uh, not all places are at peace, and to be a Christian uh, is bringing persecution. And so we lift up your persecuted church in Nepal this morning, that you would be with believers there, that you would help them to stand fast, that they would stand strong, that, Lord, you would enable them and give them great boldness in preaching your gospel, even if that means imprisonment and um, pain and even suffering at times, that, Lord, you would help them to stand and that your gospel would go forth. Oh, God, help us to pray diligently for the persecuted church as you have asked us to do, but Lord, that we desire to do because of, of um, just realizing we have brothers and sisters in various parts of the world that are going through tougher things than we could ever imagine. And so we lift them to you. Father, we also know that there's people that have not yet heard of you and yet do not have your word. And so we lift up the Bahil people of India, God, that you would bring uh, missionaries to them, that you would help the Bible to be translated into their language, that they might turn from idolatry to the living God, that they might call upon the name of Jesus in this generation, and that, Lord, you would raise up many from uh, the United States and other countries to go to them and take the message of the gospel. And so, Lord, we lift them to you. Father, we lift up the trouble in many places in our world. We Obviously, think of the war in Ukraine, that you would show your grace and your mercy upon both of those nations, that you would draw um, many to yourself, that, Lord, you would accomplish your purposes. We know that uh, wars will uh, be in existence till the end. In fact, you told us to expect those as the end, draw as the end draws near. Would you help us to realize that you are accomplishing your purposes? And yet um, there's warrings all about, and the greatest of wars is against you and your throne. And so we thank you for the conquering son that will return one day, and all things will be brought under his feet. And we ask, Lord, that you would do that and do that quickly. But Lord, in the meantime, that you would continue to call many to yourself, 
for we don't know the hour or the day that you will come, but we trust you. Father, we lift up refugees in many places. We lift them to you as well, particularly those who are marginalized, women and children in the midst of much strife around the world. Lord, we lift up the sick. We ask that you would be with them. Father, that you would uh, be with those that even in our congregation that are uh, fighting uh, great sickness this time of the year, that you would help them. Uh, we, we think of those who are shut in that are not able to be with us, but would very much like to be with us. And we, so we lift up Janice to you and, and Lord, others that are not able to be with us. Father, we thank you for um, being near the brokenhearted. Uh, Lord, I just want to lift up Tucker Brown to you and his family and uh, the extended family as they grieve. Uh, Lord, the loss of Matt uh, this last week and as they laid him to rest yesterday, Lord, that you would help them as they grieve. Father, use this for good in their lives. Um, Lord, that you would strengthen them, that you would challenge them. Uh, Lord, we, we pray for that family. Uh, we ask that you would use this for good in Tucker's heart as well, Lord, that you would draw him to yourself and that, Lord, you would be kind to him. Father, we pray for the Seats family. We thank you for this great joy of uh, baby Eden. And uh, Lord, we know that she's the, the main attraction around here. And we thank you for her, uh, just a precious, precious child. And we just thank you for what you're doing in the Seats family. Oh God, would you help them, Lord, as they raise a daughter uh, to your glory. And Father, that you would give them great wisdom in teaching and admonishing her in your ways. And so, Father, we ask that you would give Nathan and Kirsten a good rest and just great um, just diligence, Lord, in these early days in little Eden's life. Lord, we pray that you would draw her to yourself, and Lord, that she might call on you at a young age, and that, Lord, we look forward to that day. Uh, but we lift this family to you, and we rejoice with them, Lord, in what you're doing. Father, we uh, also lift up Christ alone to you. We know that excitement has built uh, for next Sunday uh, to launch uh, a new church and to constitute officially. And while small in number, Lord, it is a work that you have done. Lord, I pray uh, for Pastor Tim this morning that you would encourage him as he um, has other engagements and is going to be preaching at another church next week, that, Lord, you would be with him, uh, that you would encourage him. We thank you for what you're doing uh, in him and Cindy as you prepare them to um, lead in this uh, new season of a new church. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for all those believers that have gathered to form that congregation. Lord, help us to encourage them, to pray for them, to strongly support them in these early days. We pray against the enemy's work that would seek for uh, to undermine this work, and uh, we ask for your help uh, that we would trust you in the midst of all of this, that, Lord, you would bring a new body to birth in Wilkes County. We thank you for Word of Grace Baptist Church and their kindness to us in this process, their prayers, their encouragement as we um, as they offer their building for us to, to use um, in these early days as a church as they meet on Sunday evening. So we thank you for what you're doing uh, in the Christ Alone group. We pray uh, for patience on the things that uh, any new church uh, wants to see happen. Um, but Lord, would you bring the growth as uh, the gospel goes forth in Wilkes County. Finally now, Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, would you bless us and keep us that your face would shine upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are continuing our study in Genesis. Uh, we are coming to the end of chapter six today, and I hope that you have been encouraged uh, as we have been walking through this. Perhaps this has been some time that you have uh, spent before uh, recent years that you haven't been in Genesis. So we hope this is a, a, a fruitful to your soul and to your understanding in its um, early parts of the Bible and how that fits together as a whole. So we pray that's been an encouragement to you. Uh, we are going to be in verse 18, and we're going to look to the end of the chapter in verse 22. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? starting in verse 11, excuse me, in verse 18 of chapter 6. These are the words of the living God. 
but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that the Lord commanded him. This is the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. In our modern day and the technology that surrounds us, we are barraged with marketing. We are barraged with advertisements. And amongst those advertisements are often the encouragement to read the terms and conditions. Often it's at the bottom with a hyperlink and you open it up and it opens a stadium of things that you're agreeing to by clicking a simple box. And perhaps last generations took more time to really read what they were agreeing to. And in our modern age, we get ourselves into all kinds of trouble by simply clicking the box and agreeing to terms and conditions. Well, as we've been looking here in Genesis, we see that these terms and conditions of God's covenant are being spelled out for Noah. A covenant, again, is, could be translated a testament or an agreement. We see this throughout the scriptures and God, how, how God has made covenants before this and with Adam and here with Noah and then later with Abraham. And then we'll see this later on throughout the scriptures in the Davidic covenant that he makes with King David and ultimately in and with our dear Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have a new covenant in his blood. So covenant is at the very heart of God's relationship with his people, his redemptive work, if you will, that he's constantly like a scarlet thread wrapping this through the scriptures so that we might see that there are the way that things are, and yet God in his kindness is initiating covenant with people. And he does this by his own favor and in his own grace. And so a few weeks ago, we looked at this, that God is initiating this with Noah, and he's doing this as we saw at the beginning of chapter six, or really the end of chapter five into chapter six, that God was going to give favor to Noah. And as verse eight says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so in the process of time, God has brought Noah to this place and giving him instructions on how to build the ark. And last week we looked that God was providing not just this covenant with him, but by way of escape of the coming judgment that God made a way. And that was going to be through an ark that he would build with his own hands. He would put it together with all the craftsmen of that day. Noah was going to put it together and he was to build it with certain items in certain ways, with certain measurements, and he would put this all together and then God would take them into the ark. And it's through this ark that Noah, his family, and a portion of creation would be saved. And we ended on the note that we also are given the challenge by God to go through his way of salvation. And there's only one door and it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. And there isn't only a certain amount of time that we ought to enter that door until the door closes. It's a clear call to repentance. It would happen in Noah's day. It happens in our day. It happens in every generation that God says, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so in the light of this covenant, we want to look at this more closely because where we ended in verse 17 last week, we now have a transition in verse 18. We often have told you that as we look at the text, 
Context is important, but also connective verbs, connective parts of speech. Everything comes together to help us to understand what a text is saying. And so at the beginning of verse 18, notice there the three-letter word, but. It's actually one of the greatest words in all of the Bible. You consider all that has been said that often in the narrative of scripture, it's explaining what is going on, sometimes dark circumstances, which we are clear in Roman or in uh, uh, Genesis chapter six, that Noah in his generation was seeing great violence and God was going to bring judgment. But God acts. We see this in the New Testament, don't we? That we are lost in our transgressions and sins, but God. And so if there ever was a beautiful but, it's right here in the scripture. It's right here in verse 18. And it says, but I, God, will establish my covenant with you. Speaking to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. So I wanna look at this text in several points. First of all, mainly in three points, but we have some sub points here. First of all, we see here God's covenant in verse 18. Then God is making this covenant with Noah and it will be laid out in different ways and it will be referred to in the chapters ahead. But secondly, we're gonna look at in verse 19 through 21, we'll see that God has care for his creation. He has care, he's going to redeem part of his creation along with Noah. And we'll see this in multiple ways, through protection, by bringing them into the ark. Secondly, by their progeny or their, their um, you know, the very biological uh, uh, protection that he's gonna bring future generations of both man and beast. And then lastly, we're going to see that he brings attention to provisions, that they would bring food onto the ark to provide for them that we know would be well over a year. And then lastly, we're going to look at God's commands that were obeyed by Noah. And we see that there was many details here that Noah obeyed over the course of the time of building the ark over the course of over 100 years. And we'll see here, of course, that these were precise things, precise measurements, and so Moses obeyed, or excuse me, Noah obeyed with all of his heart. And then lastly, we'll see that these painstaking labors um, ultimately led to, um, by believing God by faith, ultimately led to Noah's salvation. So let's take a look at those things. First of all, right here in verse 18, this covenant that he is establishing. Now, as we considered last week, this word ark really has been, of course, translated from the original language that it's really a borrowed word even in the Hebrew from the Egyptian, which actually can be translated almost palace uh, in, in one form or another. However, when we translate it into English and here from the Latin Vulgate, we see that it actually just means box. This is where we get the, the term ark. And if you wonder about that, you look later in the Old Testament, we know they built another kind of ark, the Ark of the Covenant. And it was simply a box. Yeah, different measurements. Of course, the scale was a lot different, but it is an ark. It was a box. And God is not, of course, contained in that box, but rather he was revealing that he desired to dwell with them. And in a similar way here, we see in with the covenant with Noah that there was a box that he would ultimately use for their salvation. And he was calling them to build it. Now, we left off last week considering all that was happening in Noah's day. Now, other ships certainly had been built or were being built uh, in that day. Ancient history tells us that. But it was certainly peculiar to build a ark inland from sea. We assume that that was happening, and yet there was certain mockery that God would even bring judgment. And we get that sense from Hebrews 11 when uh, we know that Noah was preaching against that generation and condemned that generation. And so we see in even brief summarized form that Noah was standing against the world population at that point. So while we look at this and consider this, it's often true 
that God's people stand alone or stand against the tide, and no pun intended there. But we see here that God is at work, that he is establishing a covenant with him. Now, carrying on from what we talked about last week, we know that God's covenants are for his purpose. But how kind it is of him to involve us. He could have wiped out all creation in a just way. But we see into God's heart here in the text of Genesis that he shows grace. That is glorious news. It's glorious in the fact that it teaches us much about this great God. You've heard it said many times that why is the God of the New Testament so much more gracious and loving than the Old Testament? And my my argument would be, just look at the text a little bit closer. What is unkind that God is doing for Noah that he doesn't do in the New Testament? There will be a day where he closes his offer of salvation to even us in these latter days. And so God is gracious. His covenants are always motivated by grace. It's not that God's lonely and needs us. We've dealt with those matters before. But he draws near us. We just came out of the Advent season that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We don't need anything more to know about the character of God, but that he has come to us, that he wants to abide with us He wants to restore us to himself. And so there's not just dark fury and judgment. It's on the backdrop of that just judgment that God brings salvation and the offer of his grace. So we know that this covenant was going to involve an ark. We know it involved him and his family. Notice this is the first time in our text that Noah and his sons and their wives are mentioned. If you look back at the end of chapter 5, it says that Noah was 500 years old in verse 32, and Noah fathered three sons. So what's that, what's that implying? Again, that these sons were somehow, uh, were probably fathered in and after his 500-year-old birthday. You think some of you are old? Uh, be encouraged. Um, that you ain't, you ain't near that yet. You're still teenagers. So in the sense of this, Shem, Ham, and Japheth probably took wives in this period, and by doing that, these ladies should have been very glad that they married into this family. And so while we can talk about family strife and all that, here's a great picture of uh, something that really worked out through marriage. These wives uh, were going to be saved, and again, God was going to use these four women to ultimately repopulate the earth on the back end of judgment. And I don't think we're necessarily reading into the text here, but a principle here that God, when he judges, he he always reserves a remnant that he will use to, again, plant the seed of his redemptive purposes in the next generation. You consider that even in our day, that while there's much great violence against God and his word and against the, the false teaching that comes against the church, that each generation fights this battle and God brings peace, and God brings redemption to another generation. No one can outdo his great uh, power and his great will in doing so. So we see this covenant is the, the context on which he is going to work. And then we see here, now that we've seen his covenant, notice God's care for his creation in verse 19. Look at what it says. It says, and every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. Now, we know there's more details to come, but focusing here on this text, I think it's important for us to note that, again, the the sin of mankind has turned the world into turmoil. And it's such a weight that the earth is obviously affected by mankind's sin. But we also see that God is showing redemption even to his creation. And this is important because we've looked at this as Pastor Cason has walked us through those early chapters of Genesis in seeing how God created, that the crown point of his 
of his uh, creation was mankind. And while he was charged to give uh, and have dominion over all these things, that no doubt the created world was in turmoil. Romans helps paint this picture too when it says that as the earth awaits the final judgment, that it groans, that our world groans. You think about the extinction of animals are often caused by decay and corrupt, the corruption around us. We think about our own earth, and while we don't need to get into political issues today, we see the effects of humankind on earth. We consider uh, the great amounts of trash in our oceans, and we consider the, the flippancy of man and how it has an effect on creation. And so we see here that God is showing grace even to his created animals. And notice he says here, in different ways, he's going to protect them, first of all. He's bringing them into the ark to keep them alive. And notice that he's bringing them male and female. Yes, gender matters, because God created it that way, and not just for procreation, but because this is how he created his world, and he said it was good. And so he's bringing them male and female. There would be no way for the, the, um, the uh, animal kingdom to grow once again on the backside of the flood. Many scientists have commented on a passage like this. While we know that Genesis is not a science textbook, it's very interesting to note in verses like this the, the amount of the genetic code in both man and beast that was destroyed at the flood. You consider that for a moment. The amount of genetic code that was destroyed during the flood. You think about all that happened even after that, that the earth was under a sustained um, strain in both the animal kingdom, let alone humans. And so really, we are the descendants of Noah and his family. It's very interesting to note that because you can imagine that the world at the time of Noah could have been as much as one billion people. Um, many dif differ on that. If you want some good reading on that that will put you to sleep at night, um, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know about that and you can read about it. But it's interesting to picture what the days of Noah would have been like. But in this, so he's protecting them. He's going to bring them into the ark. It's a certain kind, um, male and female. But notice he says in verse 20, of birds also, according to their kinds. And again, kind here is speaking of not just every single uh, animal, but ultimately the species. And so God was protecting them. And then all the animals according to their kinds, animals in general, land beasts, and of every creeping thing, which would include insects according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. So God's grace extends to his creation. He's showing kindness to his extended creation. So it's through projection, or rather, rather protection. Secondly, through their progeny, he's, he's reserving them for a, a future world after this destruction and judgment. And then lastly, we see here provisions. Look at verse 21. It says, also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. You thought uh, the year 2000 was a challenge to store up food. Well, what about Noah and his day? Everything came crashing down. He was to store up, not just for his family, but all the animals. So if you're really gonna hoard stuff, you really gotta do it for the animals too, just, just to let you know. But in verse 22, um, it obviously shows that Noah did this, and we'll get to that in a moment. But the food here is both for him, his family, and all of these animals. Now, for any biologist in the room, you realize, or a zoologist, every animal doesn't eat the same thing. So you can imagine the amount of food that they had to have over the course of a year for all these animals. If you've had the opportunity to go up to Kentucky, to Hebron, Kentucky, to see uh, the Creation Museum and the Ark, um, they built the Ark with the same specifications uh, as the scriptures uh, uh, gave to Noah. 
and you can see how massive is that that boat was. It was similar to a container ship that we might see today on the oceans. Not the largest, for sure, but a large container ship. And based upon these um, measurements, many have uh, goffed at this, uh, that, that it would somehow be too small for such an endeavor. But when you consider the cubic foot uh, footage of this great ship, there would be plenty of room, not only for uh, Noah and his family and a portion of creation, but also the food that would be needed for these animals. And so while the scriptures don't want to bring us to the details of the ark for the purpose of them themselves, I think the details are important for us to realize that Noah was taking these at God's word, as God's word and that he was obeying them to the T. He was bringing these things as he needed over the course of this time. And so as we consider what he's doing with his creation and we understand what he's doing with Noah, we get this last point here in verse 22 that is very informative to us. And that is Noah responded to God. God told him to build the ark. He told him to do it by specification. He told, uh, told Noah rather to do this for animals and for his family. And it's the testimony here at the end of chapter six of Genesis is that Noah did all that God commanded him. Those are important words for us to see. In contrast to the generation that Noah lived in, he was not obey, that, that was not obeying God and was working against the very purposes of God that Noah was listening, Noah was finding favor with God, and Noah was obeying God. Sure, when we look at this, we know that, it's, that, that Noah wasn't saved because of his obedience, but in a way he was. When you consider this, that God freely made the way of salvation, but Noah had to believe that God was telling the truth. And we know from Hebrews 11 that this is exactly what caused him to obey God by faith, that he believed that God would do what he said he was gonna do. And therefore he obeyed and he was saved by his faith. And so when we look at this and we compare what even James says in his epistle in the New Testament, that we are saved by faith, but that faith is not just static, it is acting, it's an active faith. It's not faith itself that saves us, but rather the person or the one who can do for Noah what he can't do for himself which is God. God is the one who saves. God is the one who we put our faith and trust in. And so while we might think we have the faith of a mountain size, if it's not directed to the correct proportion to the one who provides such salvation, it's worthless. I can believe all I want that I can fly, but the moment I jump off a building, the law of gravity tells me I am wrong. And so I can have all the faith in the world that I can do that, but unless I believe what God has put in place, I cannot truly be saved. On the other hand, we often put our trust into uh, things that can do things for us that we can't do for ourselves, Consider an airplane. While the law of gravity is true, we believe that getting into a cylinder made of metal with two wings that has amazing amount of fuel and two properly put together engines that we're trusting that the engineers precisely put together. And as it roars to speed and we start going down the runway, the law of aerodynamics overcomes the law of gravity. We got on that plane believing it could do for us what we could not do for ourselves. We couldn't travel that distance at that speed, at that height on our own as humans, but we believe that that can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And therefore, one law is overcome by another. In the same way, Noah believed that, God, you are saying that you're bringing judgment. I believe you. I believe that this world is uh, diabolically opposed to
to you and your purposes, and you are showing me favor, and for that I am grateful. And so God gives him instruction, and so by faith, Noah takes very clear calculations of the preciseness by which he is to put together this ark. Over a hundred years, we can say he lived literally by faith. Every nail, every wood plank, every amount of food that he needed for the animals and for his family. And he put that all together in obedience to God. And we know in later chapters here, in later verses, that God is the one who finally shuts the door. And it's by faith that Noah finds salvation for him and for his family. So God's covenant, God's care for his creation, and finally, God's commands. I think it's important for us to note because we think, okay, great, Pastor Scott, thank you for this history lesson from the Old Testament about Noah. So what? I agree. This is where it hits the road for us. This is where the rubber hits the road in the sense that God is giving us a text here that we ought to consider is not far removed from our situation. This text is not an ancient text that we can just look at and just simply put aside. No, this text is in our faces this morning in black and white, calling us to the same radical obedience that God called Noah to in his day. That there is a judgment coming and it's that backdrop that he preaches the gospel to us that we must be saved. We must obey this gospel and it's on his terms and the only door is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way and people can come up with their own ideas of how they will stand before the God of judgment one day but God has said there is no other way except through my son. I have been offended as a holy God and I will bring judgment. But the glory of the gospel is that he sent that sacrifice in our place. He did this for us. As Romans says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In the same way in our text, that in the midst of a violent and wicked generation that God was bringing judgment on, he showed favor to Noah. If you are in the hearing of my voice this morning, God is showing you favor. He is calling you to himself afresh today. Believer or unbeliever, if you're an unbeliever, he's calling you to trust him for the first time. If you are a believer, he's saying, keep trusting me. For I am bringing a judgment with unquenchable fire in the future. And sure, it's not popular in our day to hear a sermon about judgment. I get it, but it's true. Hell is a real place. We cannot explain it away with all of our literary gymnastics. God is bringing judgment one day. And this is coming at a dear cost. It's a raging fire, a lake of fire that was created for the, for the devil and his angels. And yet all who are opposed to him, that is our default location because we are in, in uh, utter rebellion against him. But God has made a way. Our own dear Savior, Jesus Christ, has laid down his life that he might open a door that was not previously opened to mankind. And that is that we could be reconciled with the living God. This is what it means that Christ died for you. And hear me out here. Our way into the kingdom is not by mere, uh, you know, obedience of our own liking, thinking that we can stand or fall before the Lord based on our own merits. No, it must, we must come by his merits, which is based on what he accomplished, that we are not able to please God on our, by ourselves. But it's ultimately what Christ has done and how he has fulfilled God's law perfectly. He, like a type of Noah here, or Noah as a type even of what Christ would be, is that he followed the jot and tittle of God's commands and he put them into practice. He obeyed the Lord, but he did this ultimately by faith as Hebrews 11 reminds us. Every covenant in the Bible is not only initiated by God's grace, but it's also kept by him. 
and yet even when his own, uh, the own recipients of that covenant failed, God is showing, again, his grace and his mercy as a redemptive act. And this should encourage us because not only has he provided this way, he's also provided the timing of it. You consider God's patience with Noah's generation. He said he would do this, but it took 100 years for it actually to come to pass. He asked Noah to obey, and he obeyed. He looked to God in faith. And so my question for us this morning is, have you entered Christ? Have you come by way of the cross? Have you come and realized your own sin? And you have you rested in him as we have been reminded that Noah, his name actually means to rest? Have you rested in Christ's accomplished work? Have you gone by way of Jesus Christ? Or are you trusting another method? Or hoping for another method? Or searching for another method when God has given you the solution? And so it's in this we might say, well, in, in the context of this, what does it mean for me as a believer? How, how can, what is God asking of me to do? Well, I think it's also reminiscent here that when God gives us his word, he is being very kind to us. He's revealing himself to us that every word of scripture is inspired by God and useful for doctrine, for reproof, for teaching, for training in righteousness. And so, dear beloved, what place does God's word play in your heart in this new year? In what ways have you grown weary? In what ways have you grown stagnant in listening to the Lord? For we know from Noah's example here that even delayed obedience is disobedience. And so it's not the obedience that earns us favor, but obedience does reveal whether we are trusting God's promises. That Noah's obedience proved his faith. As the apostle James says, faith without works is dead. And so a faith that is truly in the Lord Jesus Christ is a faith that's going to be working. And what does that mean? It means in all of our life that we're looking at the, our, our lives in the sense of who God is and what is it that he's calling us to do and what is it that he would have to be pleasing to him that we could obey him in. Not in our own strength. We know that we are given his Holy Spirit for such power and such authority in our lives. And so, in what areas, dear Christian, are you failing to obey the Lord? And that is not just a sense of do's and don'ts, but what does that reveal about where your faith lies? Are you trusting the Lord? As Jesus himself says that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Do you see that this is the very covenant that we have with God, that he has accomplished these things. He has placed us perfectly in him, and yet at the same time, he is calling us to live that out and being disciplined by that very grace, not to abuse it. And so it's in this covenant of grace that we have that is far different than the covenant of Noah, yet we see its particulars at its, its very root, that God is working these things together for his glory and for our salvation. The question is, do we believe it? And if so, get in the boats. As we continue in Christ, as Paul encourages the Colossians, he says, just as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Noah walked with God. Are you walking with the Lord in faith? Are you looking to him? Not just trusting that he was able to do for you that day that you came to faith in him, but that continually he is the one who is able to do for you today what you most desperately need. Or as Paul says uh, in the midst of Romans, that he's basically, he has saved you in the sense of justification, he's saving you in the sense of sanctification, and he will save you future tense in glorification. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he is able to save? And therefore all of us, 
in this room are called to faith, the radical faith that Noah also had in his Savior. A radical faith that changes our uh, trajectory. It's also a faith that has a different root than the rest of the world. And while the world is falling under judgment and uh, suffering the roots of Adam's sin, we are seeing that just as an airplane takes off, overcoming the law of gravity, so God's people are being redeemed. Church, I challenge you this day to look at Noah and this covenant that God made with him, that you are just like Noah in his day. Noah's generation was passing away. Noah's generation was telling him to focus on different things, but Noah believed God. That was the clarity of his life. That was trajectory of his life. And ultimately he obeyed God. And through that act of obedience by faith, God saved Noah and his family. But I also think it's important to notice that Noah, notice that Noah was used by God to save um, the part of creation that was around, uh, around him. In other words, just as our sin has diverse effects in our lives and sin doesn't just ever affect us, it affects everyone around us, so we see here that God in his working in our lives by faith affects those around them. God's working in us and through us, calling people to repentance and faith that it's not going unheard or unseen. Think about that, dear brother and sister, that as you live your life and you scatter the seeds of the gospel, you can trust that God will bring those root or those seeds to, to fruition, that God will save many in his generation. And so the question is not of who we know God will save or who he will not save. The issue is, are we going out and casting that seed and calling people to repentance and faith? And so, yes, I'm going there. What is our zeal like for calling the world to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? What is our personal habits of sharing the gospel, praying for the lost, considering missionary endeavors, considering how we get involved in what God is doing in the world? These are all helpful rhetorical questions for us all. So it's not just on a personal level, it affects all of our existence. But lastly, I think it's important to notice that God had a plan for Noah and a, a particular time that Noah would do this. We know that the scriptures tell us that, um, that it's appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. There's a lot of assumptions we make in life for the unbeliever, the assumption that they'll have another day to repent. The assumption of the believer is that we'll have another day to share the gospel with that loved one. The assumption that we have another day to, to go and practice what God is telling us to do. There'll be another day. There's another time. I can correct that later. I can encourage tomorrow when God is calling us to do that today. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And so God calls us to faith in him. And so the inner workings of our lives do matter. They matter to us. They matter to the church. They matter to our community as we seek to obey God and to trust him in our generation. And so the challenge to us, as it was in Noah's day, is are we coming to God believing him in faith? And is that causing repentance in our lives and in those around us? Are we trusting in our dear Savior's plan of salvation that there is no other way except through Christ and his accomplished work on the cross and believing that because he raised the dead, he is also able to preserve us to the end until he comes back for us and we too are raised with him. And so again, the call to us is to look to him simply in faith, to yield to him, Many to salvation, others to continue in him. And consider too, that in Noah's day, the terms of the conditions of the covenant were laid out in the same way the terms and conditions are laid out for us. But one day will come when that door closes and God comes for his people and the world at that time will be judged. Let's pray. Father, thank you for 
your servant Noah that we've been able to study and consider and realize that his generation was not much different than our own. A generation that was going their own way, doing what was right in their own eyes. Thinking that their lives mattered to them, but they didn't look in light of who you are. And yet Noah, Noah's life was impacted by not only your initiation of a relationship with him, but through covenant, your promises that Noah could rest upon. God, in a world where we are often skeptical of trusting people, we find that your promises are impeccable, that you do what you promise. And as we read your word and looking into ancient history and seeing that from the beginning to the present, you have always been faithful to your promises. And we're humbled that you would call us out of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved son, calling us to enter by the way of the cross, the cross of Christ. Lord, I pray for this congregation. I pray that you would help us to see what you are calling us to in this generation of ours, to not just condemn the world in an unhelpful way, but rather a call to repentance, to call them out for their wicked ways. Not because we ourselves in our own strength are not wicked, but rather a call to repentance because that is what you have called us to. And thereby living by faith, it brings the sentence, the reminder that this world is not our home, that you are preparing a place for us. You have always been a master builder. You've always given the right instructions. And Lord, if Noah worked on the ark for 100 years, and it says in the beginning chapters of Genesis that you created the world in six days, but you've been working on a place for us for 2,000 years, how awesome it will be to be a part of your new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells, where you alone are our light, you alone are our joy, that gold is mere asphalt. We look forward to such a day, not because of the place, but because of the person that we will enjoy forever. Oh God, I pray that we all would be found in him this day, that you would receive honor and glory through our lives as we seek to live by faith because you are good and we know that will glorify you, but we also know it is for our supreme joy, both now and a thousand years from now. In Jesus' name, amen.